Hello and welcome to the Ravens, a One Tree Hill podcast. I'm Simon and I love One Tree Hill. And tonight we have a very special guest. We have John Nordstrom, who was the composer of the score on One Tree Hill season three to season nine. Incredibly grateful for your time. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Simon. Yeah, glad to be here. It's uh the the music is so so key uh to one tree hill uh like to to underpinning all of the the tone and and you know into movies and tv in general but to take it all the way back before we get there can you tell us like how you know you originally got into composing like we did you play instruments like as as a kid like in high school or how did how did this journey like begin for you i actually started out as a filmmaker So when I was in grade school, I used to take my parents' Super 8 camera or their VHS camera, and I would shoot little movies with my friends. And I made probably a couple dozen short films. And I was always obsessed with how the music could make you feel completely differently about a scene. Whether it was funny, whether it was dramatic, the music really made it shine and and so I, I started to play a little bit of piano. Um, I started, I, I rented a drum kit. I played drums. I was obsessed with the police, <laughs> with the band, the police, and, and yeah. in particular, Stuart Copeland, the drummer. And so I took up drums and, and just taught myself. I would just put on police records or Rolling Stones or whatever, and I would try and just keep up with it on the drums and just, just taught myself. And then... Um, and then from there, when I started getting more serious about it in high school and I was in a cover band, we would play, you know, keg parties and frat parties and, you know, just any place we could play around town, we would, we would, you know, set up and jam. And, um, and so as I got kind of more serious about it, um, when I, I, I went to USC for college and I tried to get into the film school, but I, I couldn't get in. So at the time you, you couldn't submit a film that you had made. So, um, the only way to get in was with excellent grades or some kind of Hollywood contacts. And I didn't have either one of those (laughs) I had very mediocre grades and I had no contacts. I grew up in Seattle, Seattle, Uh Washington. And so I was far from Hollywood and, um, and so, so I being at USC couldn't get into the film school. I just made a pivot. And my, my other passion was music. And so I went into recording and mixing. So I learned how to mic instruments, record them, mix them, you know, come up with a full sound palette and make something sound really professional. And I loved it. Like, I love that part of the music creation is recording, mixing, like adding atmosphere to things. And it's so cinematic that, that was really something that that I, I felt I was good at. I, I could kind of hear it in my head and picture how I wanted something to sound because I always have a more of a visual way of, of looking at things. And um, so it, it really lent to me writing music for film because being a filmmaker and then being into music, like you combine the two and then you have a person that does film scores. 
Wow. There's so, so much great stuff there already. I mean, it's, um, Seattle is actually somewhere that I've actually spent quite a bit of time, uh, just on a personal note. Uh, I used to work in, um, an American summer camp that's on, um, the San Juan Islands just off of Seattle. Was it Four Winds or no, Norwester? Norwester camp? No, it was, uh, Camp Orkyla is a wild. Oh, yeah, yeah, American. yeah. You know it. I, I've heard crazy. of that, yeah. Small world, small world. Where in the San Juans? Were you on like Lopez Island or what? Which island? Uh, Orcas. Oh yeah, Orcas. Okay, I've been there. And you love it? It's beautiful, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, it's gorgeous up there. Wow, wow. As you'd never think like it's such a small, you know. Who would That's have crazy. So you went, came from the UK, and worked in the San Juan Islands. Yeah, for free for free summers in a row. Uh, I think wow. two thousand and seven 2008 2009 um i loved it it was like life life changing for me actually it was um yeah it was great times so so my family has a cabin that's been in our family since about 1910 wow. my great grandfather used to used to pitch a tent on a wood platform on the same property that we have a cabin now back wow. in like 1910 1911 and so when you were there those three years i was probably like an hour boat ride away from you. That's insane. Because we, we would go up and spend like at least a couple weeks, if not a month up there in the summer. Wow. Yeah. It's, with my it's, kids and it was awesome. It's such a beautiful, the the Pacific Northwest, that whole region is so beautiful. Um, and that's yeah. the time to go, summer, because it's mm. otherwise it's raining all the time, kind of like <laughs> UK. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and then USC, I actually uh, spent some time there. Um, I used to uh, volunteer with the Special Olympics for basketball, and we played in a competition that was uh, over in LA. And we actually stayed, we were like housed in the student dorms at USC. So it's like the two places you mentioned, I actually wow. have some experience with. That's um, That's wild. That's crazy, but uh, it's so true what you um, what you're saying about the music being so impactful. In terms of, I think you can, from a fan's perspective, you can spot a bad film, like you know, like like a B movie. You can often spot it because the music is is so garbage, or they're not using music in the right way, and uh, it yeah. doesn't sort of tie the seams together. Um, and yeah. there's all these great examples on YouTube of when they like take the music out of like you know in like famous scenes and then it just loses all of the weight um and, oh it's it's yeah. so true i mean the two great examples were um star wars and chariots of fire mm. those are two you know oscar winning films and they were literally on the scrap heap before the score was added like mm. both studios had no i mean they 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 had everything on the line but like they had zero um expectations of success for either one of those films and then the score was added and everything changed and all of a sudden they became the hottest films you know of their time just because the score matched the emotions so well mm, yeah that, that, yeah that's great i mean it was so t tell us more about your stories uh, what happened next so um so when I was at USC, um, one of my professors was, uh, as I got a little older, I was like a senior. He, um, he was doing sound effects for a kid's TV show on PBS on public broadcasting. 
and they asked him, they had no budget for music, like a couple hundred dollars an episode um, for about 25 minutes of music per episode and couldn't hire a professional to do it. And so they said, we need a new, either a newcomer or someone that's desperate. <laughs> and so they said, do you know any students that could do this? And my professor said, yeah, I do. I have a student that's really into scoring and can really come up with a good sound on a, on a small budget. So he had me meet the producers. Then I did two test episodes where they gave me an episode with no music, kind of told me generally what they wanted. I wrote the music, turned it in, and literally with no credits, and I hadn't even graduated college yet, they hired me. Wow. And that was a show called Storytime on PBS. It was celebrities that came in and read books to to, to a group of kids, and then the story would kind of come alive and the music would come in the score. Um, so I wrote the theme and all the scores and that ended up running 10 years. Wow. I did other shows at the same time, but I ended up doing a hundred and 118 episodes of that show. Wow. Right, right out of the gate. That's crazy. So you spent yeah. the whole, that's insane. So your first gig, so to speak, went, went for a decade. Yeah. And it's, um, it was a great gig because it, it, I would do maybe, you know, 15 to 20 episodes per season and then there'd be a break so I could do other shows and then, it, and then I could come back to that one. So it was, it was just kind of an ongoing project that just, you know, just was the gift that kept on giving and the budget went up and then it went national. It became a national PBS show. So then I actually started making, you know, more of an income. I could make a living off of it. So um, the whole thing was just a home run. And I still am so grateful to my professor. And I, um, I started a scholarship at USC in the scoring program, um, kind of based on my relationship with him and how much the school did for me, you know, right out of the gate, right when I graduated. Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. And it's always so nice when people like sort of, you know, pay homage to where they came from and how they got in, you know, the like remembering the people that opened the door. That's, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. And then do you watch any, um, Aaron spelling shows like any of the old nine Oh two one Oh, or of course, um, yeah. Or Melrose place or any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was the, that was kind of the beginning of the teen show. And, you know, that was even before the OC or before any of those shows. And, um, my, my big break, like with network television was with an Aaron spelling show, um, called models Inc. And it only lasted 30 episodes, but at the time it was a sum, a new summer series for Fox. And it was a huge deal. Like it was on the cover of every magazine and they were, they wanted a big launch and I was doing promo music for, um, for Fox television at the time I was just writing 30 second and 10 second promos like in between their shows for this new show that was coming up. <clears throat> then I'll never forget it. I was driving. It was, it was on a Monday. I was driving down sunset Boulevard in Hollywood and I get a call from the head of promo music at Fox. And he goes, can you write a 45 second theme tonight and turn it in at Fox at 8am tomorrow morning? Wow. And I said, of course. <laughs> <laughs> So I said, what do you need? And he said, okay, 45 seconds. We need a 10 second intro, um, a, a, you know, a 20 second theme and a five second 
outro kind of just mm-hmm. in general, general terms. So I went home and he said, we want it sexy. We want it, you know, not too techno or too fashiony, but have a little bit of that, but mostly have it be sexy and, and kind of, you know, big sounding, very cinematic. So I go home, I write it, um, put a pot of coffee on and stayed up all night and um, played every instrument. I played the drums, the guitar, the, it was a lot of keyboards and stuff. And then um, mixed it. Um, just, you know, I thought, man, I, I, I actually have something here. I think it sounds pretty good. Got in the car at 7.30. This is pre-internet, so I couldn't just send them the file. I had to get in the car, drive the tape over, pop it into the player and play it in his office at 8 a.m. He loved it. He said, okay, I got to get it over to Aaron Spelling. I got to, you know, send it to my guys to start cutting picture to it. And by, I think, noon, um, I get a call from Aaron Spelling and he says, it's a gorgeous theme, John. (laughs) That's crazy. So I said, Oh, wow. You know, thank you so much. And, um, he goes, yep, it's going on the air. So literally I went from not having a theme on network, you know, big network television a day before and about 26 hours later, I had a national theme on a major new TV show. That is insane. That is crazy. Well, I mean, right, to, to take it back a second, when you're, so you get you get told you get asked to make this theme when you start writing the music like what is your process like do you how do you do you kind of hear it in your head first or do you just play around with certain instruments and like like how do you I, coordinate I, had a, I had a chord progression that I thought would be kind of the main part of it and then what I do is I get it I kind of get a tempo that I think will work and I time it out and I and I start programming the drums um, to match the timing that they need. So I knew, I knew that it had to be 45 seconds, like completely clear with no fade out or anything. Like it had to be exactly 45 seconds of audio. So I had to, you know, at the end of a piece, there's usually, especially a theme, there's a big kind of ending chord. Mm -hmm. So I knew that had to happen like 40, probably 42 seconds. You can have three seconds of kind of a fade. So it's, you know, it's a lot of technical stuff, but I, but I, program the drums so that then I'll know like exactly what, what tempo is going to work with that timing. And so the drums, once I had those, like the, you know, the main part of the drums down in the beat, then I start adding the chords on different keyboards and then, um, making sure that I'm in the right key so that the chords I want to play in guitar will sound, you know, will match up with the key that I'm in. And, um, and I kind of lay down the baseline, maybe just some, just some basic chords on the piano or on a, any kind of a synth synth or a keyboard. And then I lay the guitar on top of that and, you know, come up with a, an interesting guitar sound that has, you know, that sounds professional. And again, I was so obsessed with the police that all my <laughs> guitar stuff always has kind of delays and reverb and it always has an atmospheric you know, U2 is another, you know, the edge from U2, like that sound is, I've always, always thought was so cinematic too. To. So, um, 
So I, I layer those instruments on, on top of each other and kind of get a basic sound. And then I just start fleshing out like all the little details and little instruments that come in and out and accent things. And then the, um, the hi hats and the crashes and the, um, all the high end percussion. I'll, I'll play that live on top of the program drums. So it's like half programmed, half real playing. And, you know, it's just a matter of just layering and then taking things out when it gets a little too busy and just, just like with a song, just fleshing out exactly what works, what doesn't work. And, um, and then mixing it to make it just sound really punchy and big and, you know, fat sounding with like a good <laughs> bass, good drums. And, you know, it's just, it's a lot of, it's a lot of working on it and just stripping away and then adding, you know, it's a lot, it's a, it's a process it's, and you only have a couple hours to do it. So you're really slammed. It's crazy. And it's such a high level of creativity. Like it's creativity that I could never even imagine fathoming trying to do myself. I mean, I, apart from the fact that I'm, I'm not musical at all. I had a couple lessons with saxophone in high school, tried to learn I, Pink Panther and then left it there. <laughs> I, I played the saxophone in my fifth grade um, orchestra. And, Did you? um, but I, I hated it. Like I, I, I didn't like playing a woodwind instrument. I didn't like that. You know, I didn't like that, that feeling. And I switched over to drums right after that. But it's funny that you said saxophone. Cause I, I played saxophone just for a year in grade school. But did you learn to play the pink Panther theme tune on the saxophone? You must've done that. I think I did. I think that was one <laughs> of the first things I wanted to learn. Cause it was so iconic. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's, it's so cool. I mean, with, with, um, when you've written a piece of music like that, I mean, with like royalties and things, is that something that um, is like automatic? Like that happens every time? Because like uh, on our podcast, we were talking quite famously about, um, is it the Rembrandts that did the Friends theme tune? I'd read online somewhere that they don't get any royalties for that. They only get... But that's, that's not because they didn't write. That's not because they they... It, the only reason they don't get royalties is because they didn't write the song. Right. So they the only performed it. The song is getting royalties yeah. for it. So right. the, the guy that wrote it was married to one of the creators of the show. Oh. Um, I think her name is Marta Kaufman. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so her husband wrote the theme and I think probably did a lot of the music and then had the Rembrandt sing on top of it. Ah, well, that so the reason sense. they don't get the reason they don't they don't get paid is because they didn't write it. Right, it's well, always the enough. writer. The writer makes you know the long term money. The performers make a fee to sing it, and then that's it. Right, right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So with um with like streaming platforms, just um you know out of curiosity, does that does that continue? So like you know if like when you know, a One Tree Hill episode, we will get to One Tree Hill people, but if like you know, a One Tree Hill episode plays or something, is that something where, you know, you'll get a little something from that? Like, do they have that written in or is that something? Yeah. So you sign a deal basically saying that any time that the show is played publicly, mm. um, the, the directors, I think through the Directors Guild, they get a fee. The actors will make some kind of SAG money 
Screen Actors Guild money. Mm-hmm. And then the composers and the writers also will make a royalty. Um, so it was, you know, when, when they, when all that stuff started, when YouTube started, when Netflix started, when Hulu, all that, it was the wild west and they were getting away with murder. They were just playing stuff <laughs> willy nilly and not paying anybody and making a bazillion dollars and no one was making any of the royalties. And so now it's kind of caught up and it's, it's actually paying like a decent wage. Now it's, it's paying a decent royalty. Um, but it took a while. It took a little while to, to catch up to that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Well, um, and speaking of the wild west, we spoke just before we started the podcast that we actually use your, uh, a piece of your music in yeah. our intro and outro of our podcast though. We have, we officially have permission though, right? Well, kind of, you not, I gave you, I gave, I gave you permission right before we started today. <laughs> well thank you We're incredibly grateful and i love that piece of music and we'll we'll, we'll get on to that so um do, is this is there part of you that misses those days of pre-internet of like driving and actually taking the tape and playing it for someone and seeing their of reaction course. like or do you like the the ease that the internet has like given it's a give and take i i like i i really kind of pine for the days before social media. I think social media is really, really destructive. Mm. Um, I have four kids, um, 26 to 18 and two girls and two boys. And they luckily they're not like obsessed with social media and they, their Instagram accounts, like they hardly ever really post or anything. And it's just, it's just not a huge part of their life, but I've seen so many people kind of be really damaged by it. And, Mm. um, that's the thing that I think, you know, when I think back to the old days, I really loved like the human interaction and in person and kind of being able to separate work from personal life. And, you know, kids could separate school from just like on one tree Hill, they went to school. If they had problems at school, they could, they could go home and get away from those. Mm. Whereas with social media, all that stuff follows you home. And like, if you're dealing with bullies or something, they can just follow you on social media and just always be in your head. So it's, you know, when you watch the show, it's just such a different thing. No one's on their phones. (laughs) No one's like just sitting there looking at their phones. You know, it's, it's just, it was a different world where everybody was more connected. So that's the thing that I miss, but I love being able to like send a music file to somebody. I love being able to do what we're doing right now. You know, we're all the way across the globe from each other, but we can, you know, talk to each other with it, you know, and be able to see each other while we're talking. So it's, you know, there's so many advantages, but those are the things I miss. Yeah, totally. I, I was actually talking to my wife earlier about this in regards to social media and saying how, I miss being able to lose contact with people like, you know, I, I miss that being able to, these were people that I knew from this job or from this, when I was in this school or whatever. And then the natural order of things is our lives move on in different directions and we lose touch and that's fine because we make contacts with new people. But now it's like people that you haven't seen for 15 years can find out everything about you by going online well not me I actually don't have social media for these exact reasons except for the one for the podcast but it's not about me you know um but it's you know people 
already know what your Christmas was like and, you know, what presents, who got this, that and the yeah. other. And it's all so, um, yeah, just. Uh, I haven't, I haven't posted a, a photo on my Instagram for over a year and I don't miss it at all. I never look <laughs> at it. I just right around COVID, I just decided I'm, I'm going to just quit it. Mm. And I wasn't really obsessed with it before, but I really quit it. Like I never look at it. And, um, that's why when you, I think you sent me a note through mm -hmm. Instagram, but I didn't see it for a long time. Uh, I, I was, was just, I just happened to be, somebody sent me a link or something. It took me to Instagram. That's the only reason I even saw your message. Mm, it was serendipitous. I was really, yeah. I was really happy to find you on there because I am, um, I really wanted to talk about the music because it is so, so important. Um, and just the whole tone of the show. So wait, we 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 will we will get there. So where what happens okay. next? So you've got this theme now. It's out there on national TV. And yeah. Then I got um. Then I got an agent from that. <clears throat> Before I couldn't get an agent. You know, if you're just doing like a little PBS show and you know doing some commercials here and there, you know, you can't really get an agent. But if you get a major show with no representation, then that tells everybody you're you know you must be pretty good. And you're, you're also energized to, to be employed. You know, you're out there getting your own work. Mm -hmm. So I got an agent and then, um, and then through that, um, that just opened up a lot more opportunities and working with different composers. I, I, I wrote a little bit under, um, some of Hans Zimmer's people, no way. Um, did some ghostwriting like for a movie called Spy Game. Oh, I know Robert Spy Game. Yeah. And Brad Pitt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wrote some of the music for that. Some of the the scenes um, that kind of needed like an Arabic atmospheric music like, in the Middle East. So that was really fun just to be able to work on something that was so amazing, you know, visually mm -hmm. and budget wise. They <clears throat> They had just, you know incredible visuals to, to write music to. Um, and that led to doing a show called American fighter pilot that, um, Tony Scott, the director of spy game and top gun and all these different movies. He had a short lived CBS series, but I wrote the music for that, um, and worked with Tony and he was great. Um, and then I've just, I've done dozens of series, um, for ABC um, CBS, NBC, Fox, um, and a couple little movies. I did a, a movie called, um, Nearing Grace. Um, that was just a little indie movie. And that actually, the music from that, um, was given to the One Tree Hill people when they were looking for somebody new. And that wow. led to, to, you know, to getting an audition for that, for the show. Right. Okay. So, so now that's all awesome, by the way. I mean, I mean, um, and me being naive, really, when it comes to composers, the only uh, real composers that I know, besides you, of course, uh, is, of <laughs> course, John Williams, uh, and then and Hans Zimmer um, as well. Um, is it's as someone that knows, you know, you're the expert. Is uh, is John Williams like one of your favorites as well, um, or is that kind of course? Of just because I, you know, I grew up listening to his music, you know, as a child, like all the movies that I was into in the '70s and the '80s, you know, 
John Williams wrote the music to a lot of like the greatest films of those, of that, of my whole childhood. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's totally different music than I write. Like I wouldn't even attempt to write the type of music that he writes. He's just really, really good at that big flourishy orchestral style. And Hans, Hans writes more, um, you know, he, a lot of bombastic music, like with tons of huge percussion and a lot of action movies, but he also mm -hmm. is really good at writing, um, kind of minimalist, beautiful, melodic music too. Um, so I, I, I guess I would kind of think of my stuff as a little bit more close, you know, close to his style. You're, um, so we'll, and we will get, we'll talk about it, but you're, uh, you've, all of your stuff is on SoundCloud, um, for, uh, for One Tree Hill and, and for other things as well. And I actually knew about that before we'd even spoken because, um, that's what you said. Yeah. Yeah. When, when I'm working, uh, I like, you know, doing emails and doing whatever, I can't listen to music that has lyrics, uh, because I, I, ca I cannot multitask at all. And I, so I get sucked into listening to the, to the lyrics. So I, for a long time have been putting on movie scores that I love um, that have no, you know, no, no lyrics in and I can just yeah. sort of work to the flow of it. And I've been doing that with, uh, with your playlist um, from SoundCloud for, for a while, for well over a year. Um, and That's great. It, it is really nice, mellow, like music and yeah, it's it, really it nice. Makes you, it makes you think Mm. You know, score really it's helping the audience feel what they're supposed to feel when they're watching a scene so when you listen to it and you're doing something it kind of scores whatever you're doing and it makes you <laughs> feel a certain way yeah um, that's what it does like when i listen to other people's music in the same way that you do like when i'm doing emails or when i'm you know out walking or whatever it it really can change your entire mood and the way you feel about what you're seeing or what you're doing yeah and you can have like a soundtrack to like certain periods of time like you'd think you know last summer or in, you know in quarantine or whatever and there's certain you know music and things and it will always remind you know remind me of that time um so it's yeah it's so true i i have to ask you just while it's just come into my head do you have like a favorite movie score like a particular movie and it's score that's your like favorite of all time oh man that's tough. <laughs> or a couple, um, a couple honorable mentions. I'd have to look, I'd have to look at, um, I think, well, I mean, of course, um, one of the most icon iconic scores when I was in um, early high school was Blade Runner. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Vangelis, um, that one I keep going back to all the time. And when you listen to that first piece, um, that opens the film. It's really like every time it hits me when there's a certain chord change, when, when, uh, Deckard's ship, when Harrison Ford is approaching the, the, the building to go in and, and, and talk to the guy that built the replicants, mm -hmm. there's something about that chord change that just every time emotionally it just hits me. And it's not even supposed to be emotional. That piece, it's supposed to be kind of mysterious but it, there's something about it every time it gets me and and i listen to that all the time mm -hmm. um and then of course you know this there's star wars there's all those great john williams scores um the other guy that i love that's 
probably the most ripped off composer in all of Hollywood who, who everybody copies all the time because producers always want you to, <laughs> um, is Thomas Newman. Okay. Yeah. And so the American beauty score that has been, that's been ripped off so many times that you can't even believe it. Like Thomas Newman actually has to rip himself off because they'll, <laughs> they'll use temporary music. They'll use the music from that movie on a ton of the movies that he's hired to score. And he has to rewrite music that sounds almost identical to what he wrote for that movie. Cause it's so brilliant. <laughs> so his, his music, like there's a couple different pieces in that score that you'll hear in probably like 10,000 TV commercials have used very similar music. And then so many movies have used, there's an actual piece called American beauty on the score. And if you listen to that, that has been used as a temporary piece of music, probably in about at least a thousand movies. And they asked the composer to write something very close emotionally to that piece. And I can always pick it out because I've been asked to do it so many times that I, that I know exactly what they were going for. So is that what they do? They'll put something in that's like from someone else and be like, we want something that's this kind of tone. Exactly. They'll say, we don't want you to, to, copy it melodically you know we don't we can't get too close to the, what the actual piece of music is just emotionally we want you to really listen to what he did and try and tap into that that's cool nice i i, I have to just throw it in there one of my favorites um is and it's john williams again isn't it um is the back to the future score um that is john williams that's, isn't it that's alan silvestri oh my well there you go i know i know another one <laughs> well or i don't but he that score is so good like i can listen to it when i'm driving and i want to go to 80, 88 miles an hour i mean you know i won't but it makes me want to uh it's yep. so good oh it's fantastic yeah um okay so so we get to one tree hill there you are not the composer for the first two seasons um so it, do you know if there was a reason why they didn't continue with the person that composed the first two seasons and why they wanted to go in a different direction yeah so i i got a call from my agent i just come up come off that film nearing grace that i was telling you about mm -hmm. and that's actually on my soundcloud just the john nordstrom soundcloud a lot of my early series are on there, but that was one, that's one of them that's on there. And, um, and so I just come off of that and I had written a very similar sounding score to what I was going to be asked to do on, on one tree Hill. So <clears throat> my agent sent in that, that CD, um, to the producers. And I think there was 14 of us. Wow. So 14 composers were asked to write a score like a, a for three different scenes for the show for, for the, and it was scenes from uh season 2. And I'd never seen the show. Mm -hmm. So I I didn't have anything to base what I was going to do on. They just said we want real instruments and, you know, real guitars, real drums, everything real. We don't want anything sampled. Um so I did three scenes and then they whittled it down to three of us. 
So it went from 14. Then I got a call from my agent. Okay, they really liked what you did. It's down to three of you. And you're going to interview with the producers. So I walk into a meeting and it's Mark Schwann and um, Joe Devola and a couple of the executive producers. And what I found out later was that they had already decided to hire a different guy before my interview. Oh, wow. They, they thought that another interview went so well that before I came in, they were like, well, I think we're going to hire so-and-so, but let's just talk to John before because we got to, he's already here. Like he may as well come in and talk to us. So I go in and I had made the decision. I was going to really push for this gig because I just thought I was, I was perfect to, to write the music. Like I emotionally, I, I thought I could really tap into what they needed. So I, I really pushed hard and just said, I'm the guy that should be writing the music for the show. Here's my influences here. You know, I know you guys love this kind of music. Um, and I, and I kind of just had a leap of faith. Like I just thought they'd be into the same kind of bands that I was into because they were around the same age. And luckily they did. And I said, and I could see they were looking at each other during the meeting, kind of thinking like, uh Oh, like we like what he's saying too. And so when I walked out, um, you know, it was a great meeting and on the way home, I get a call from my agent and she says, okay, now it's down to two of you and you're going to write one more scene for the show. They're going to send over a, a, you know, a VHS and you're going to write another score and then they're going to hire whoever they like this, this next score. They're going to hire that guy. So I, so I go home you know, the tape arrives, I see what kind of scene it is. And I said, okay, I'm just going to go all out. So I hired a drummer and this really great acoustic guitar player that's played on all my stuff. And then I played bass, piano, and electric guitar. And I wrote a full piece that just sounded like a, like a Coldplay song, like, you know, <laughs> really just a great acoustic guitar, um, atmospheric electric guitar and um wrote this whole piece um sent it in and uh lindsey wolfington who's the music supervisor for the show she's kind of a secret weapon of the show she cho she chooses all the songs um she'd be a great person for you to talk to too because she picked all the great music and all the great songs for one tree Hill all the way through nine seasons oh thank you you yeah, told me I'll that into that yeah, so she she told me that when when this piece of music on this demo when that the second that it came on, Mark Schwann said, "That's the music I want." Like he said, it, like the second that it played, he knew exactly that that was the type of score that he wanted for the show, and he goes, "That's what I've been wanting for two seasons." Wow! And they told me the reason why they were going in a new direction was because. Not that the score wasn't good for the first two seasons, but it was all on the computer. So all the acoustic guitars, the electric guitars, anything you're hearing is all playing, being played on a keyboard. Right. None of it is actually being strummed on a guitar or, you know, playing through an amp. It's all just inside the box, so to speak. It's all in a computer. Um, so the score they really liked. I mean, the guy obviously is super talented writing music for TV, but they just wanted a really live, 
um, more, more kind of like a record sounding score where, where when the record, when the song that they have on the show is fading out and the score comes in, they don't want two separate sounds. They want the score to also sound like a band is playing um, with real guitars, real basses, real drums, you know? Um, so that's what they were looking for. And um, when I gave them the second demo, that's when they knew that, that I was the guy they wanted to hire. I can, I can play you the piece of music. Oh, please. Do you want to hear it? Of course. So, so this is the piece that I wrote and um, this is what they heard. And this is the one, this is the sound that Mark wanted. so good and i so they use I, I i've heard that they use that in the show yeah. right yeah so they used it on i think the second episode that i wrote for the show um because the i wrote this for a scene that's in uh season three episode one but then they completely recut the show by the time i actually worked on the real the real finished episode so that scene was completely different and they put a song behind that instead so this this score didn't work for that anymore, but Mark liked it so much that he used it. I would say I kind of reproduced it and recut it maybe thirty or forty times for different scenes. Wow. Um, where they where it needed that type of a sound behind it. And then he also used it for scenes um from next week or scenes from last week. Yeah. So yeah. the recap. The recap, they would use it all the time. And whenever Mark got in a jam with music, he would just pop this piece of music in and it always seemed to work for whatever scene he wanted to use it for. It it sounds quintessentially One Tree Hill. Uh, it, it just has that feeling about it. Like it, like when I was listening to it, I could I could visualize, you know, like you know, uh like the scenes and at the end of um, each episode or a lot of the episodes, it seems like the final three minutes is usually always to some music. And there's usually like a montage of like setting yeah. the characters into a place of where they're going to pick up from for the next episode and sort of getting to this crescendo of like a cliffhanger or something. And it is, yeah. and it feels like I could imagine that happening over that sort of music. Um, it's really good. Like, I oh, love that. You. Yeah, so I I hired those guys not not even knowing that I was going to get the show, but I just figured 
I'm just, you know, cause I think it was like, you know, to hire both those guys to track for half a day, it was, it probably cost me like 800 bucks, you know, cause these guys are like the top guys. And so, um, I just did it because I thought like, I really want this show and, and this is the only way I'm going to be able to get it to sound the way I want it to sound. Um, cause I, I can play electric guitar, all the electric guitar you hear on there, um, in the background, that's all me, but the acoustic guitar is just, if you get somebody that's just really gifted, that can really play acoustic, it adds a lot to, to what you're doing. It just brings it to life. And this guy, Bruce Watson, he's played on tons of scores and tons of albums, um, for a lot of bands and he just has the gift for, you know, just coming up with amazing little riffs and, and, um, he just, he, he made that piece sound spectacular. And in the investment paid off, like you invested yeah. in yourself in the opportunity. So, so you find out you get the show amazing. Um, what, how long is it before your, you know, season three is beginning? Like what's like the lead time before you're into the swing um, of things? I think they told me probably about two or three weeks before I went in for the first spotting session, which is where you go in and, and meet with Mark and the editor. Um, and, and Lindsay Wolfington is usually there, the music supervisor. And you just kind of hash out different ideas and they play you the temporary music that's in there against the scenes so that you can see kind of what they're going for. And once I had done probably half the first season for the rest of the time I worked on the show, they always just had my music in as the temporary music. <laughs> so it made it really easy for me to know kind of what they wanted. Cause I had written that music for a different scene, but I knew exactly how and why I wrote it the way I did. And so it, it was a great roadmap for me. Yeah. So it's like your, your sound became the sound of the show. It like transitioned yeah. to being, you know, John's sound. So uh, and it also makes perfect sense just to go back a second that that they wanted it to be, you know, authentic uh, instruments because the the show takes music it is an integral part of the show. Like as in it become the, the a big theme of the show is music and like Peyton's character, for example, and love of music. Um, so yeah. it, it makes sense that they would want to have that um, done properly. Um, so I've. I assume that the schedule is that they film an episode from like Monday to Friday, let's say. And then is it, how long do you then get to do the music for that episode? Or is that how it works? Do you then spend so, the next week doing the episode for that uh, the music for that episode or? Yeah. So they would shoot um, probably about six weeks before I saw anything. So they would okay. shoot, you know, like a full month and a half before I even saw one minute of edited footage. Um, but by the time I went in there, the editors, they had like four different editors for the show that were always just going from episode to episode. So probably each episode took about a month to edit. Wow. You know, so they would get the footage in, they'd start going through the dailies, they'd start picking their favorite takes of different things. And the editors would have a lot of time to work on it. But for, for me, that time that they needed to edit always cut into my time. Right. So I probably had about five days to do each episode. Um, and that's go in, have the meeting, 
um, you know, get the tape from them, put it into my computer, you know, have to start from scratch and then write all the music and mix it and produce it and get the, get it back to them. You know, it, it was probably, they called it a week, but it was actually probably five days of actually, you know, time to be able to really work on it and write it. So it was a quick turnaround window. Yeah. And would, would you watch the, like the entire episode to like understand the, to get like the themes of everything, or would you just watch the scenes that you were going to score? Oh no, we watched the whole thing through because they wanted me to see how they were using songs on it too. Right. Right. And then I could kind of get the feel for, you know, what the whole show sounded like. Cause you and can't I, come in with a piece of music that completely fights the, the song that is, you know, coming out of the, the prior scene. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I assume you went, as soon as you like booked the job that you'd went straight back and watched season one and season two to like catch up on everything. I didn't, I've, I've never seen season one or season two. Well, that is insane. I've never seen them because I didn't want it to influence what I was going to do. Okay, that makes sense. That makes I, sense. I, you know, I ended up kind of seeing like a scene or two here and there, and they to- they kind of filled me in story wise what was going on, but I didn't want to watch it and then go, oh, I have to use this organ sound that they're using mm. in those seasons because I got to tie it in. I wanted to go completely fresh and come up with a new sound because that's what they wanted, and I didn't want that to to influence what I was going to do. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, and that shows me thinking about it from like a fan perspective because um, Paul, like Paul Johansson said the same thing, that he's only seen uh, 70 episodes of 187 and he only yeah. would only re, you know, watch the bits that his character would watch so he's not influenced in thinking about having knowledge that his character wouldn't have. So um, yeah. that's really interesting. But So, but uh, you... It, go ahead. No, no, sorry, go on. Oh, no, that it worked for me just because, um, you know, I, I think like what he said, I mean, you don't want anything to 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 taint what you're going to do and kind of tell you to write a certain way when the producers have already told you, you know, we want to go in this new direction. So I, I think I will go back and watch them. My, my daughters have both watched the whole series <laughs> and they kind of filled me in. Hey, you know, the season one and two, like, you know, they would tell me what was going on story-wise as well. But I, I do want to go back and watch them. I think I, I'll next time I'm on a long flight, I'll, I'll start <laughs> One Tree Hill season one. You definitely should. You yeah. definitely should. And then get to season three as quick as you can, because then you can start getting some royalties. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, when we were talking about this briefly before we started um, uh, recording, but so this whole time when you're doing the music, you weren't in Wilmington at all. You were back in California. Yeah. So I, I live near Santa Monica, which is kind of out by the beach. Um, and the show, all the whole, the, the entire office is in Burbank. And so, um, so I would, I would drive out to Burbank every week, usually like on a Monday and um we would do the spotting session and then i'd have to turn in the music the following sunday so um so yeah i mean it was we were we were in california the whole time i never i think i met three of the cast members the entire seven years i was working on the show 
That's insane. Um, and then I ran into Paul. You you mentioned Paul Johansson. I ran into him with his kid in a park in Santa Monica when I was w- taking a walk with my wife, maybe <laughs> three years ago. And we oh. chatted and caught up. And I told him, "Hey, you know, you don't know me, but I wrote the music for One Tree Hill." And then he was just the nicest guy. He's so nice. Yeah, as are you, though. So a couple of nice guys in a park. So. <laughs> that's that's so crazy and what a strange um like relationship or non-relationship like you're both cemented in history in this show and you are both an integral part of the show and you're scoring some of like the craziest moments that his you know character has in particular i mean oh yeah to jump ahead i mean in your first season they have the school shooting episode which is you know probably that was an interesting one because they they didn't know if I could do that score. You know, I was hired to do this rock and roll score with acoustic guitars and electric guitars and piano and drums and stuff. And then here comes the school shooting episode. And they we they called me and they said, hey, you know, we're doing this completely different episode. Do we need, you know, we might need to hire a different composer for this single one, you know, episode. And I said, no, 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 no. I like you get pigeonholed as a composer. They think you can only do one style. So then I gave them the score to a mini series that I had done um, on the sci-fi network called five days to midnight. And it was a five hour mini series um, that was really dark, really intense, like a lot of drama, a lot of death. And, you know, it was just, it was dark and heavy and so I gave them that and the, the editor used that music to temp the whole episode 316. Wow. So um, then they knew that I could do it and they loved the sound. They loved the score. And so basically I just had to kind of recompose the same style that I had already done years before um, for that other miniseries. And it worked out great. I mean, I loved working on that episode it was so powerful and um you know it it let me show them that i i can do you know any type of music that they want yeah i mean that episode is probably the most infamous episode of the entire show and um yeah i mean and then the music that goes with it the the emotion i mean the moment where you know where dan shoots uh shoots keith and all of that stuff it's so uh like iconic in the you know universe of the show so that's really cool and but crazy that that was also you know in the middle of your first season with them you know they've had these two seasons before which spoilers because you haven't seen them but you know it's pretty calm you don't really don't have anything anywhere near that and then you know 16 episodes in you're scoring that and interestingly enough a lot of people's favorite season is season three it is, yeah. You know, just because a lot happens and there's great episodes and, um, you know, just a lot of story that season. But that was the season when they were closest to getting canceled. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about that? Because it's it's sort of um, said a lot. And Mark Schwann has said in loads of interviews and things that almost every season it felt like it was going to get canceled. Uh, so, oh, I mean, it, how did you feel it came about down, that? It, it came down to the last day every single year. I think the only year that they were that they were re-upped before going down to the wire was i think after season five 
So okay. I think season six was the only season that they that where they confirmed that the show is going to continue while we were still working on the show. Every other season, it came down to literally like an hour before they were going to make the announcement before they decided to to renew um, One Tree Hill. And okay. and season three, I think another reason why they hired me for season three is they said this is a make or break season for us and we need to have everybody doing like their very, very best work. And so they said, you know, anything that we think can be better, we're, we're stepping up our game. And so I felt like, you know, especially like for the school shooting episode, I felt like it had to be the right music and you couldn't go too, too big or too, crazy overboard with it. You just, it just had to really support what was happening on screen and story-wise. And, um, I think that's that particular episode saved the show. That's what Paul said as well. He said that that kind of saved the show because he, we were talking about how that episode meant that the show lost, uh, Craig Sheffer as Keith. And he was saying how that was, uh, he thought he was worried and talking to producers saying that that was a big cost to the show because he was like an integral part. Um, but ultimately that episode saved the show because it became such like a, an infamous moment. Yep, definitely. And I, I didn't get to see that much of Craig cause he was, you know, Keith, the, the character Keith was, was kind of, I think he left for part of season three. Like he wasn't really as big of a deal in season three. Um, but I guess in season one and two, he was a big part of the show. Yeah. He's, um, and Paul actually bring it back to him again. He can he described him as like the Mr. Miyagi character from like karate kid. And I actually, that's how I see him now is he's kind of like, yeah, he kind of gives the advice. Um, so, um, yeah, but, so how did it feel for you as the as a composer you get onto this big show um well big ish it's kind of it's kind of got bigger almost as it's ended like the fandom never stops but how did it feel for you feeling like it could be cancelled every year like was it like a nice I mean, thing that every year you were like oh no actually it's still going or was it not nice because you were you know anxious that you know it was going to stop it was actually par for the course. I mean, it, it's, that's the, you know, the story of my life. I mean, when you're a TV composer, when you're in television of any kind, you expect to be canceled because most shows are canceled. I mean, by far, it's like to, to make it to a season three or season five is like one in 250 or something. I mean, you literally, it just doesn't happen back then, especially because it was all big budget network television. Now with Netflix and all these other, you know, with prime video and all that stuff, I mean, there's just so much, so much more capital where they can get budgets to, to go out and shoot. And I think the technology has made it so that they can have a smaller budget and still have amazing looking shows. Yeah. Um, and so you can have more shows being made and just more jobs. But, but back then it was, you know, it was a lot to do a show like like one tree hill and you know it just it had to have a certain audience to continue um and the the great thing about one tree hill is the fans were just so rabid and they would just call the network and they would have like these 
you know, protests almost like outside the offices of, of Warner brothers and, you know, to tell them to keep the show on. So, I mean, the fans really saved, you know, it saved, you know, me being able to work on the show and, you know, the entire cast and crew, you know, we have to thank the fans cause that that's what kept the show going. It's, it's awesome. I mean, I actually didn't discover the show until the start of season nine. <laughs> um, so well, I couldn't, I didn't have any part to play in any of this, but I feel like we're keeping Dom and I are trying to keep the fandom going in 2021, you know, so <laughs> we're trying to help people get it, get their, um, you know, residuals and royalties. After there you go. The show. Thank you. How, how, often, how often do you write? I mean, do you watch the show? How often, how many episodes do you watch per week or what do you, what's your schedule? Yeah, so Dom and I are doing one a week. Um, oh, and wow. then we, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you forever to watch this thing. It's four and a half year commitment. Uh, yeah. Wow. That, and we've finished, we're at the start of season two. So we've just done episode five of season two. Um, but it's wow. fun. Dom and I, we've known each other our whole lives. Um, but we're actually, we're building to a crescendo. So on the very last episode of season nine we're gonna dom and i are gonna fly from the uk out to wilmington uh and we're gonna um there's a organization called fwb that does um charity events where they do like conventions and get the cast there and they do it in they do it actually in trick like they own the actual premise premises now um and we're going to podcast the final episode from there so that's kind of like what we're building to um and then and then we're and then dominic says we're going to do the same with star trek because i've never seen star (laughs) trek so he's gonna make me watch that so (laughs) (laughs) um that's great that's that's fun that you're gonna go you know you're gonna go to the set go to where they shot the show um i read an article about the guy that owns the colonial house that Peyton lived in that um, Hillary Burton's character lived in. And he, he says that still maybe anywhere from five to 20 fans come by every couple days and take pictures in front of his house. That's a weird thing, isn't it? Uh, Did he, was he saying that he found that amusing or he didn't like it? He actually doesn't mind it at all. Cause he said, they're always so nice. And they never take advantage of it or, you know, mess up his front yard or anything. Like they're always just super nice and and gracious about it and and you know, so he feels like, you know, I'm gonna be nice back. That's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, we'll we'll see him in four years. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so you go into like season four, season five, and that the the show changes i mean they have the uh yeah. the time jump at the end of season four um and and it becomes a whole different show really it goes from like a teen drama to like yeah i, I don't know what you'd say like a mid-20s you know young adult yeah. sort of drama um were you were you excited by that because you get to play with the music a bit more or what did you think yeah they kind of made a conscious decision that um it was going to it was going to become a little bit more piano focused and acoustic guitar focused, as opposed to my first two seasons were more kind of Coldplay U2 sort of atmospheric electric guitar. Mm -hmm. Um, Very reminiscent to like Friday night lights and that kind of a sound. Um, And they wanted to go a little bit more adult sounding. 
more piano, more acoustic, and maybe a little softer. I don't know, but but you know, just when they needed that specifically. Um, the piece that you play over your show mm-hmm. that was called Peyton in L.A. and that's on <laughs> my SoundCloud too. Um, but that I wrote that because they said, "Hey, can you come up with a couple pieces like before the season even started, before season five started?" just a couple pieces that we can cut things to and kind of start creating a sound, excuse me, for season five. And that was one of the pieces I wrote. Um, and so, but I, I love that piece and they actually ended up using it, I think for the end credits. Yeah. Um, starting season five, they started using that for the end credits. So they that's, liked it too. Yeah. That's why, that's where I, so I got it from your SoundCloud um, and I was cool. going through before like so Dom and I had recorded our first episode and then for a second I guess I got to see what it was like to be someone thinking about the score not creating anything but stealing but looking thinking about it and I was like what what is going to be the right sound to introduce you know our show and I went through loads of different things and it was like oh that's the one it's so one tree hill to me anyway um and yeah it's it's a great piece of music i love it thanks so much yeah Yeah. it's kind of it's kind of like the the faster more adult sounding version of the piece that i played you earlier um Mm. you know that's that's more kind of early one tree hill that one's just a little bit more more piano driven and and a little bit more percussive and it has a little more drive to it maybe a little faster tempo Mm mm-hmm but I love it. I mean, I ended up basing a lot of the score that year off of some of the little thematic ideas in that piece. And did you have like particular characters that you enjoyed scoring more? Like as in like, say like, like Dan, for example, as like the antagonist, um, did you have like a particular, you know, did you have favorites like that, that were like good to write music for? Um, not necessarily favorite characters. It was more favorite storylines like, um, like psycho Derek and, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and like the, the nanny, nanny what was Carrie. Name? Carrie? Yeah. Yeah. Carrie. Yeah. So that stuff, you know, that let me spread my wings too, because I could go really dark and I love dark, mysterious music. I really like writing that. So, um, those really stand out to me. Um, but then I also love emotion. I love writing stuff when people are getting real with their feelings and, you know, a lot of the, the, the stuff between the, um, the storylines, like between the female characters Mm -hmm. when they're, you know, hashing it out and, you know, having problems with each other or, or kind of coming back together as friends, like a lot of those emotional scenes where the score was an integral part of those scenes like that, that I love writing emotional music too, like on piano or guitar. And yeah. And, and it's, uh, I'm really looking forward to what, uh, watching cause we watch it in such detail. So I don't know if you know, but Dom and I will do about three hours of a podcast on each episode. So we go into detail. So I'm really looking forward to when we're getting to season three to, um, you know, really unpacking all of the music and really paying more, you know, really close attention to 
the to the to the score i mean okay, do cool. you, yeah it's yeah, I, I i really can't wait i mean do, do you have um i mean the show gets kind of crazier and crazier in a beautiful way i love the show um but you know as it goes on you know like you said psycho Derek, and we get to season nine and you know nathan's been kidnapped by like russians or something and oh yeah yeah, Mark would always Mark would always say when some crazy thing happened, like in the spotting session, he'd go, Bet you didn't see that coming. Like he just that was like his tagline because he he knew we were just gonna be absolutely shocked by what was happening. And, and you know, everybody's big shock moment is when Dan shot Keith. Yeah. You know, that's that was just completely psychotic and just out of the blue. And I had no idea what was going on when I watched that the first time. And that was a bet. You didn't see that coming times 10. Yeah. Well, Dom has no idea that that's coming. And he, um, and Jimmy, the character that um, goes into the school with the gun and whatever, he yeah. thinks that Jimmy's gone because he's only in the first two episodes of season one. He's not in it again. And then he comes back for just those two episodes in season three. Yeah. And uh, I've been playing pranks on Dom being like, oh, yeah, we're never going to see him again. Or oh, if he does come back, he'd probably come back with a gun. Ha ha ha. You know, like <laughs> just messing with him. He has no idea, but I've actually been in contact with Colin Fix, who's the actor that played Jimmy, and he's going to come on for that episode with us to to talk about it um but yeah it's crazy that that was a real jaw-dropping moment i mean do you have um do you have is is season three like was looking back is that your favorite season that you scored um over your time or um i would say i I would say i had fun you know every season just because I i was always able to do something new you know they would have an idea for the type of score that they wanted. And it was kind of, it was evolving the entire time. Um, I would say my favorite season of score would probably be season four. Um, There was that, that it's a wonderful life episode where, where um, Haley gets hit by the car. Yes. Yes. And that, scene um that whole time in the show like i could pretty much just kind of do whatever i thought was right for the scenes and it seemed like everybody just agreed with whatever i was doing and i would never get i mean i hardly ever got notes the entire time i worked on one tree hill because they just once i tapped into what they wanted musically i was able to just give it to them and they knew what what I was going to do. And it just all worked really well, which isn't the case with every show. Usually you get a lot of notes. Um, but season four, I don't know. There's something about that. I, I just, I felt like everything just really worked well. And, you know, there were darker moments and, and, you know, just different storylines that were fun to work on. I think season three and four. So when we have guests on um, and we have um, fans on as well to to discuss their favorite episodes and we always ask people what their favorite seasons are and people, the most popular choices are season three and season four. Um, so yeah, that, that makes yeah, I feel sense. I feel fortunate that I was hired and then they like hit their peak right after that. Yeah, definitely. 
Well, and another episode that just come to my mind off of the back of the uh, what it's a wonderful life episode. I think it's in season six. It's the one where they do like is it like the nineteen fifties or the forties um, episode? I think oh, Chad that's, Mar- that's the only one I didn't do. Oh, because I think I think um, the actress that plays Haley um, Joy, mm-hmm. I think that she she was was like performing or writing music with some somebody that was doing a lot of that kind of big band you know swing kind of stuff and it just made sense because i there was hardly going to be any score i think it was almost all kind of just you know needle drop big band stuff um so they didn't need much score but that was the one episode um that i i didn't i didn't work on that's crazy yeah. yeah that it just came to my mind that um that episode because they did a couple like that where it's like dream sequences um like actually um i oh know that's in season two you haven't seen it <laughs> <laughs> there's a dream sequence in season two where nathan yeah, nathan is in is in like a coma or something and he has a dream that him and lucas switch places and what it would be like if they were, uh, if Lucas had grown up with Dan and if Deb had left Dan and sort of grew, and he was sort of in like the Lucas shoes. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And actually, this, this jacket, uh, I wear it now for podcasts. So this, uh, I got this from Paul Johansson, but this jacket is, it was in that episode because um, in the episode, he's like the assistant coach to Whitey um rather than being like you know the big car salesman or whatever um speaking of which i i assume you didn't but we always ask did you get to keep any props from the show or anything like that no yeah i never i just because it was being shot across the country that kind of never came up i mean they would always give everybody they give cast and crew like a um a christmas present every year and it would be a jacket with the logo on it. And it would say season five or season four or whatever, um, or a bag or a, you know, like an, like an airline, like carry on bag or it was mm-hmm. different things every year. Um, so those are the only things that I, that I kept from the show. But other than that, no, that's still cool though. That's stuff yeah. that no one else has. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. And so, um did how did it feel when you got to the end like the end of season nine and you know it's definitely the end like is that because i mean that's a big a big period of time like did it did it was did it feel you know sad in a way for it to be over i mean and exciting in other ways because you know it frees you up to do other things um well even while i was working on one tree hill sometimes i worked on other shows at the same time mm-hmm. um so it, it never slowed me down from being able to take other things. Um, but I, it kind of felt, it kind of felt like it was the the right time for the show to end story wise. Um, I think they had told everything they needed to tell. And, mm. and so it kind of felt fine, you know, and I still talked to a bunch of people that I worked with and, um, Lindsay Wolfington lives in my neighborhood. Mm. Um, so we see each other out, you know, walking around with our families or, you know, going out to dinner or whatever, pre COVID. Yeah. Um, but I still see her sometimes, even when we're just walking to town, 
back and forth from her house. Like I'll, I'll just see her or her husband like walking around or riding a bike. So, you know, I, I, I keep in touch with, with a few people from the show. That's awesome. Well, it's, it's so nice to hear like this, the insight and uh, you know, how it all happened because um, for multiple reasons, I mean, one, it's just so interesting. Um, Like regardless of it being one tree hill related, it's just really interesting. And then secondly, of course, because it's one tree hill related. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, thank you so much for your time. I mean, uh, in the, in the description below, I'm going to put the links uh, to, to the SoundCloud. So everyone, you know, go and enjoy uh, all of John's amazing uh, music. Uh, I mean, is, is there anything, uh, you know, that, that you're working on at the moment that uh, people can look out for or, so right after One Tree Hill ended, I started working on the CBS um, soap opera, The Bold and the Beautiful. I <laughs> I show I told my wife this because I of course I you know IMDb'd you and everything, and she was like, yeah, she she used to watch that because that's yeah. that's been long running, right? So it's been on the air since eighty seven, since nineteen eighty seven. I started working on it in twenty thirteen. So the the guy that whose family started young and the restless and bold and the beautiful is actually a, a close friend of mine. And he had seen me working on one tree Hill for seven years and he was working on his show and, you know, we kept business and, and, you know, friendship separate, but he'd come in and listen to the one tree Hill stuff. He'd be like, man, I want my show to sound like that. <laughs> he goes, he goes, I wish, you know, you'd come work on my show. And I said, Hey, anytime, because that show plays in over a hundred countries around the world. Wow. And it has an audience of about 30 million people per episode. Oh my God. Yeah. It has a huge audience still. And so I said, anytime you want me to work on the show, I'll, I'll be there. Cause you know, I'd love to work on something with that kind of audience and that outreach. And, um, so it's been a home run. I mean, I've been working on it since 2013. Um, and, it's totally different because all I did with that show is build a huge library of music, just a, a gigantic library. It has about 700 themes in it. Wow. Um, covering every possible emotion, every possible <laughs> scenario that characters could have. And a lot of emotion, a lot of tension, a lot of, you know, infidelity, you know, stealing companies, like <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And so, so it's, it's a, for musically, it's, it's a fantastic palette to be able to, to, you know, write tons of different types of music. And also the great thing from it is I, um, an added bonus is that I've ended up winning two Emmys for the show. Yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna put, put that in. Um, yeah, I see that as well. Amazing. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it was totally unexpected. Um, you know, I, I didn't even really think about that even being a possibility. And then, um, you know, I guess my music was kind of a new type of sound in the genre. And so people just really liked it. And so I've ended up being nominated a bunch of times and then I won twice. It was really fun, really fun for my family, for my family, because my kids, um, kept my, um, the first one that I won, they, they kept it on our kitchen Island for like six months so that everybody that came to our house would come in and see it because they were so excited about it 
that's awesome and the emmy as well are re- they're really big aren't they like it's really cool oh, the... yeah it's it's big and heavy and you know it makes quite a statement that's so, so... Now i just have them i have them on either side of my couch in my studio um which is just it's fun it's just a, a neat thing that happened that i wasn't expecting at all that's really cool it's really cool we we actually won a, a podcast award but it's um it's like that big and it's not an emmy congratulations uh, it's okay it's not it was from our friends that do another podcast and they had a vote (laughs) and we like got all of our listeners to rig the vote so we would win but uh, i just thought it's funny to bring it up when we're talking about an emmy so that's awesome that's so cool I I, i was wondering i was wondering what that was behind you yeah, so <laughs> I have the camera pointed this way because here is a load of One Tree Hill memorabilia stuff, but I have to oh, have wow. the camera pointed here so that Dom can't see it because it's got spoilers in. Um, this okay. is actually a piece of the River Court. They uh, when they when they finished with it, um, they like tore up some of the concrete and then like gave out pieces of the concrete. So wow, they should have you, given you a piece. You are a major fan oh yeah it goes (laughs) it runs deep it runs deep that's awesome um okay so i i mean so what what is what is next i mean so you're still doing this i mean would what would be like a dream a dream thing to score like would you want to like get back into doing you know like into movies or like or what what would be what would be like the dream role I mean, you're Um, living the dream already. So it's kind of a hard question. When people ask me that, I always say, you know, when I was in high school and I was recording on a little cassette four track and trying to write music and writing, you know, terrible songs that were, (laughs) you know, they got better, but I was writing pretty awful music at the beginning that just didn't make any sense. And, you know, half of it was kind of a joke. And if I could have flashed forward and seen you know, what I've been able to work on over the last 25 years. I mean, I, I never would have thought it would be, would have been possible. So, you know, I already feel like I've completely, you know, gone above and beyond any kind of dream I had as a kid, like to work in TV, work in film, to work, you know, in this medium. So anything else would just be, you know, would just be gravy, you know, from now on. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I would love to work on something um, kind of like like a minimalist sci-fi sort of a score, like Arrival or, you know, something like that, oh, yeah. like a Blade Runner type, like where it's where it's all synthesizer and really analog sounding and like a, you know, pulsating kind of thick sounding score, you know, that where you can't really place what instruments are doing what, but mm. it all kind of comes together production wise um the, i love that kind of stuff like where it's an orchestra but being used in a different way um so the, yeah the only time i ever got to use an orchestra was on um when i i was selected to to do the ascap scoring workshop ascap is the royalty company um, right. like bm there's bmi ascap and csac are the three big ones and um so when I was starting out in my career, I submitted a cassette and, and got selected to do this program. And we got to record with like an 80 piece orchestra. Wow. 
yeah at the end of it it was like a three-month session and then at the end you get to write a piece to us to a scene and record with this big orchestra i got to conduct them and i had never conducted wow. anybody and it was really thrilling that's um, awesome so I'd, I'd love to work with an orchestra again that would be fun i've I brought in sections like i, I did a a TV film um, called Prince William about the royal family around okay. the time of Diana's death. And that's on my SoundCloud too. It's one of my favorite things I've ever done. Like it's very European and cinematic sounding and orchestral sounding, even though I brought in each section, like I brought in some strings one day, overdubbed them. And I brought in some horns, some woodwinds, overdubbed them, you know, and it was all section by section. So it wasn't an actual orchestra. Um, it was everybody just piecemealed together. Um, but it still sounds great. I mean, I love, I love the result. I love the, the way that it sounds, but, um, to work with like a hundred people in a room is, is pretty amazing. Yeah. That's insane. I, I don't know. I'd be so nervous. Like that's so, I was, I mean, I, I was sweating. I mean, I was just, I couldn't believe that I was in front of all these people that had, they've played on some of the best scores of all time. You know, they're like the, they're like the top orchestra in LA and to, to be conducting them was, you know, I, I just felt like a total imposter. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very John Williams uh, situation there, I guess. Yeah. Like that's well, I mean, I mean, I guess it's like, I, I would, I mean, you must might even find it hard to remain motivated. I mean, that's a good question. Like with being so successful and achieving so much, like how do you remain motivated, um, you know, to, to, to keep going and to not sort of like, like for lack of a better term, like half arse it really, you know, like there must be a point where you're like, you, you know, you're the man, you've done it all. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's, you know, there's different levels of, of success and you have to be kind of, you know, there's, there's some people that have done what I've done and they're still mad that they didn't do a big Oscar winning film, you know what I mean? But you have to be secure enough in yourself to know kind of what success is for you. And mm. so for me, when I think about what my dream was as a kid and that I've already like way, you know, gone way beyond that. Um, I can't be mad, you know, I, for me, just for myself, I can't be mad that I haven't done some gigantic, you know, blockbuster film or something because I've achieved like way more than I thought was possible for me as a composer. Um, but it's just every, you know, everybody's different. Everybody has different drive and, you know, what they feel is success. Um, but for me, I just, I love working on like with Bold and the Beautiful now, the whole reason they brought me on was to make it not sound like a daytime show, not, mm. not sound like a soap. And so I'm really making it sound more like a Netflix show, you know, something that's really edgy and, and has sort of more of a subtle depth to it instead of being hitting you over the head. Like this is how you're supposed to think. And sometimes they use a piece that I wrote for a big moment. They'll use it in a smaller moment and mm -hmm. it's not what I would have done. But I'm fine with that because they, they got to keep an audience and they got to, you know, when they go out to commercial, they got to make sure that you're going to come back mm. at the end of the commercial break. And so sometimes they go a little more dramatic than I would, but that's fine. I mean, everybody's got to do, you know, what they think is right for the show. 
Yeah, completely. And that was some really good uh, advice in there, you know, to know what your own success is. I think that's uh, that's really powerful. And I guess, you know, you've you've hit the biggest jackpot because unknowingly you've been scoring this podcast this entire time. So. <laughs> that's well, awesome. Oh, I, I I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, it's been it's been so interesting. And what would be great is that um, you know in you know four years time when Dom and I finish this journey, if we could get you to to come back on with Dom, so then he would have heard you know and seen everything, and then we can tell you exactly. We can pinpoint the moments and you know the, all the particular musical points, uh, and then sure. we can you know talk you know about about the specifics uh if that's okay we'd love to have you back and even like when you're watching season three if there's something that you have a question about or if you want me to come on like after you know episode 16 or something if if there's music questions or questions about you know what the motivation behind the scenes or something yeah just let me know oh we would love that if i can work it out in my schedule i'll totally do it yeah of course i obviously know you know you're an incredibly busy busy guy but yeah that would be awesome thank you so much and thank you so much for your time this has been so interesting uh i've really enjoyed it and i know that our listeners uh will would have enjoyed it as well so everyone check out the soundcloud that will be in the in the links in the description and uh yeah john thank you so much thank you